You're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. All right, Hollywood, you ready to get caught up in a new thing that's not really a new thing, but it's sort of an old thing that's new again? I'm going to do my absolute best. All right. I'm here to try and convert you, my friend, to the church of enough's enough. All right. Because, you know, I've had absolutely enough of you not digging enough's enough. No pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, what's going on? You doing all right this week? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm doing good. You know, it went from snow to just uh, flood rains today, but uh, today kind of calmed down later on. So all's good. All right. All is good. good. It's all good. It's all good down here in the South. So I went and saw Enough's Enough the other night at a club concert that were playing on a bill with Junkyard and with the Iron Maidens. You all right there? You blown off some steam? What's going on? Oh, no, no. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> relaxing. Maybe it was a, a deep breath when you said Iron Maidens. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's all good. Good to hear. Good to hear. So, yeah, man, it was a, it was a good, fun show. Uh, I was able to spend a little time and sit down with uh, Chips Enough. Uh, and get the latest and greatest from what they've got going on and also gave me an opportunity to see uh, the latest version of the band because I haven't seen this band in quite some time live. I mean, the last time I saw him uh, and I talk about it a little bit in the interview with him uh, was probably many, many years ago when they were uh, down to a three-piece and um, they were opening for Mike Tramp. Uh, which we talk a b- little bit about, but that was the last time I think I saw the band live. So uh, it's been a while, but they were uh, they were on point, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about that uh, coming up. But right now, I feel like playing "Enough's Enough." You are right with that? I'll play one of the songs you dig. How's that? That sounds good to me. All right, so I'm gonna play um, a song off of their third record i'm gonna play rockin world
See, now that song rocks. I'm surprised that was not the single, because when I kind of looked it up, the single looks like it was Baby Loves You, and then there was a couple others, but this was not one of the singles. But this song is really, really good. Yeah, it's a good rocking tune, right? Yeah, I love the mo- vocal melody especially. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, I, it, Enough's Enough's one of those bands that I've pretty much followed the entire career. I mean, I, I got into them from the first record on. I love the melodies. They're basically, so you know me, I'm a, I'm a fan of the Beatles. I'm a fan of a good melody line, but I like guitars. And so if I can get a Beatles-type melody line, a little bit of a throwback sound, but I still get a good distorted guitar, I'm down with that. I mean, and then the huge the huge vocal harmonies on top of that, there's nothing I love uh, more than that. So uh, Rockin' World, man, that's a good tune. Yeah, this, uh, you know, Enough Snuffs, we were talking about it off, uh, off the air here a second, but... They just never connected with me. And part of it was they weren't big in California and they kind of came late to the party a little bit. So I was getting force fed, you know, the LA and the San Francisco bands. So these guys didn't really hit it or connect with me. And then I think the first two songs I heard was Fly High Michelle, right? A new thing. And I did not connect with the vocal melodies or Donnie's voice. And I think I immediately gave up on Enough's Enough's at that point. Right. Probably not a great idea because as I listen to other songs, I like some of their stuff. What's interesting, I guess I need to get your take on this, is Chip's the lead singer now. Does he sound like Donnie or that other guy that sang? Well, he does a good job of sounding a lot like him. I mean, Chip always sang all the vocal harmonies with Donnie. And so it comes across pretty good live. I mean, he's doing all those Donnie tunes and it sounds, you know, it sounds on point to my ears. I mean, is he as good a singer as Donnie? Probably not. He'll probably tell you that. But um, still, you know, I thought it was, uh, uh, I thought it sounded great. I thought they sounded great. So, yeah. So you got to give him credit for that. Cause like if you were to, let's say, take Dokken, well, Pilsen did all the backup melodies in Dawkins, but so now Pilsen does all the lead vocals and Don, Don's gone, it will not have the same feel. See, Jeff's and, great, but Jeff's not Dawkins. See, and I think it would sound, I think, especially nowadays, I bet that Pilsen could do a better job than Don Dawkins in Dawkins right now. And, and I'm not saying Jeff's not a good singer. I think he'd pull it off, but it wouldn't have the same feel. Yeah. That's for sure. Well, this does sort of have the same feel uh, in my eyes, but you know. It's, yeah, it's definitely, it's a lot to ask from somebody to take over the lead uh, vocals, you know, and still play bass. And are they a trio right now, or they got four on stage? No, they got two guitar players. So they got two guitar players, a drummer, and then Chip sings and plays bass. Uh, So they're a four-piece. And and the new guitar player, which he's not really a new guitar player, Tori, he's been in and out of the band for a little bit. Um, Right. But he is smoking, man. That's the first time I've seen him play live, and he's really, really good. Yeah, that was the, uh, it, well, I'll guess I'll call it an oddity because I can't think of a better word. Is when I was listening to some of their tunes, it's like, okay, well, it's got a kind of that mid tempo vibe. Okay, it's kind of got good harmony here. And then the, the 
guitar like will smoke. Yeah. And it's like, well, that guy doesn't fit with what they just did. And then they go back to what they're, they were doing with the melody. So obviously it was important to Chip to have a guy that could really tear up guitar. There's no doubt. Well, so um, just to give you a little bit of background, I mean, do you know the background of the band at all? Uh, not not a ton. Not a ton. So the original guitar player. So originally, do you remember a band out of Chicago called Life, Sex, Death? No, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. With with Stanley, the, the, um, yeah. the bum, right? Yeah. The bum singer. So the guitar player in Life, Sex, Death... Alex Kane was the original guitar player in Enough's Enough, um, at least uh, when they got their deal. And they didn't like his playing at all. He, his playing did not fit the band at all. And so they aced him um, and got Derek Frigo. Once they got Derek Frigo in the band, they got signed. Derek Frigo's dad is like this um, uh, virtuoso violin player. So he has like all these musical genes, right? So he was a smoking guitar player. He did great work on the demos. And once he got in the band, the record company signed them. Uh, So he turned it around as far as the band's sound um, and helped get them a deal. Uh, but he's a smoking guitar player. So that's kind of the backstory there with uh, having a great player in the band. Oh, okay. That's cool. Definitely, definitely a band that uh, that I'm into um, and glad to see they're back up and, and doing some stuff. It sounds like things are getting good for the band and um, they've got a new record coming out, which we talk about a little bit and, so it's it's all good um why don't we go ahead and and play this uh interview uh then we'll come back i'll talk a little bit about the show and um we'll go from there sound good sounds great all right cool here's my interview with chips enough Hi, this is Chip from Enough's Enough, and you brothers and sisters are getting my rock and roll story on the Growing Up Rock Podcast with Steve Michaels at Hollywood. Turn it up! Hey, Chip. Yep. Thanks for spending a little bit of time with me today. No problem, bro. Good to, uh, good to see your face. I'm glad you came out to see us today. Hey, I'm excited. I haven't seen you guys in probably 10 years. I think the last time I saw Enough's Enough, um, it was a three-piece, and uh, you guys were playing with Mike Tramp. Yeah, nice little tour there. I'll tell you, we got a tour bus on that. <laughs> Mike Tramp just finished up with the White Lion stuff. He says, I'm going to go out. He couldn't get Vito to come out on the tour for some reason. Uh, evidently, uh, Vito just didn't want, he wasn't hungry, didn't want to go out again. Uh, so we talked about getting a bus, and we did. And uh, both bands traveled together and did about 44 dates. And Mike was terrific. I really enjoyed hanging out with him. And uh, one great story I have on that tour was we showed up in New York, and our my former guitar player, singer, Johnny Monaco, I uh, said, uh, hey, what are you guys doing today? We said, we're going to get some sleep. We're going to go down to Howard Stern in the morning. And Monaco said, why would you guys go down 
to see Howard Stern. He doesn't like the band, doesn't like you. He don't give a shit about us. Uh, it's so stupid. You know, he went to bed. And that night I got up at 4 in the morning with my security guy, Ruben, who's been with us for years. And I uh, went down to Howard Stern's show, called called there. No no publicist, nobody set, setting the thing up. I've had a lot of history with Howard in the early days. And uh, Ron, the limo driver, picked up the phone and said, what are you doing here? I said, we're on tour right now with White Lion. And uh, I'd love to talk to Howard and say hi. He goes, listen, I'll come down and get you right now. And I showed up upstairs. They let me in the building, which was nice. That was the first win. And then uh, boy, Gary, Gary Delbody, my old buddy, says, uh, Chip, you're only going to get about 10, 15 minutes here. We got a lot of stuff going on. I said, no problem, Gary. Just want to talk to Howard and let him know we're on tour. And I was on for two hours talking, telling all the stories about all the records, the touring, the debauchery, the promiscuity, substance abuse, all the great stuff that we had. And Howard absolutely loved it. He, loved, he thought it was charming. He likes when you're not afraid to show your warts or scars or tattoos. And uh, well, great interview. And by the way, after that interview with Howard that day, I was number two on Google. And I was so excited. I went to Opie and Anthony after that show. And uh, they said, you got your number two today. Everybody's trying to look at you guys up. I said, that's great. And we show up at the venue, and there's a fire truck there and eight squad cars. Uh, jam-packed 200 people outside that can't get into the venue. And the next day, shows are completely sold out. I attribute it all to Howard Stern. Yeah, and you're, are you currently doing the Man Cow Show in uh, Chicago still or no? Yeah, I do do a Man Cow Show. We did a TV show for a couple of years on Fox. On the U. And uh, after that, uh, he said, I'm tapping out. I, I'm going back to just radio. And he signed a huge deal with The Loop. They're wonderful. And he's, he's really good at radio. Mm -hmm. And then he asked me to come in there and co-host the show. And I don't do it all the time, but I do it quite a bit. And he's been very good to me and into the band as well. And it's a great medium. We've reached a lot of people. Sure. And it's helped get enough snuff back on the map and reacquaint ourselves with the audience out there that may have forgotten about us. And it's great because it's it's local for for you there and being a local, Chicago you, boy. Yeah, but you get New York. You yep. get, uh, I'm sorry, you get Indiana. You get uh, Milwaukee right. and all them surrounding. You got eight eight to ten million people that can hear that have access to listen to that station. Yep. And he's number one in Chicago right now, so it's a good medium for me. And listen, if I was living in New York, I'd be doing Stern Show all the time too because I, I I absolutely adore him. He's been wonderful in my band, and he's a great friend. Uh, it is what it is. I live in Chicago. I get a chance to do a man cow show. I'm very thankful. He's terrific at what he does. And I'm just uh, real happy to be a part of the show. Enough's Enough's never really left. You've kept this train rolling now for 30 plus years. I mean, since, since 85, 84, essentially. You've had 20 plus albums, if you include the greatest hits and, and the the live records and things like that. So you guys have had a pretty illustrious career, even if you're not a household name. The The songs are amazing. I appreciate that. And I, I owe that to my brother, Donnie, as well. He's a wonderful songwriter, great partner. We had a wonderful run for 30 years. And, you know, there was a lot of stuff that we had to go through that fans don't know about it. And maybe it's better off that they don't. Uh, what was the most important thing for us to focus was the songs we were able to get in the studio and make records, and I thank the record companies for taking a chance on the band. And there's a lot of great things that came out of, uh, of all those years together. And one of them, the most, the biggest one to me, would be the songs. You know, perhaps our friendship is a, is a wonderful thing too. Uh, being able to travel around the country, go to Japan, go all through Europe, play those shows for thousands of people, 
played a big festivals opening for bands like Cheap Trick and Aerosmith and all the great groups that we were a chance to share that were nice enough to share their stage with us. But at the end of the day, yeah, it's all about the songs and it's about those records. And I think we left a nice little Delba mark. And uh, it's a different change. It's a change of the guard right now in the music business oh. for for all musicians, not just myself. For the new guys, I feel tough. I feel sad for them. It's a very tough business to find your loophole and get a chance to get in there and get your music to be heard by a lot of people. And I think we're very blessed. The good Lord works in mysterious ways. Okay, we're lucky to be where we're at right now. Back in the game again. Major label deal. Another record coming out. Major tours coming out. Being announced this summer through Live Nations. And started last year with Ace Freely and the Kiss tour that we did. And, and now it's finally coming to fruition. And we get a chance to go out and play. We'll go out for three months. Uh, whether it's in a van or a bus is irrelevant, playing to a great audience every single night and get a chance to push our songs. That's all that matters to me and seeing those fans. Without the fans, there's no band. They yeah. did everything for us. They kept us going all these years. And I'm just grateful that he, I get another chance. Yeah, that's exciting. So if I could, I'd like to kind of take a step back a little bit in your personal career. I think it's been publicized at one point in time when you were growing up. It was all about baseball. I mean, you were quite a, a good pitcher back in the day, and you even tried out for uh, a few major league teams at one point. But at some point, you decided, hey, I'd rather be a musician than be a baseball player how and when did you get started like playing bass how was that a choice for you well good question i started off playing bass around maybe 15 years old and i lived in a neighborhood called kayama park and i had a neighbor who played the band called mad dog guy named keith kenston wonderful guy and him and george Solsky used to let me go down to the basement and watched them rehearse, and uh, that's where I learned my got my chops from. And they they were a band. They, this band was a band that listened to so many different groups. It was uh, bands like you know early uh, Queen, you know Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. But then they had uh, outside stuff uh, that they listened to as well. That was uh, underground, uh, Dixie Drakes and uh, Wow. I just it, it caught my attention uh, what they were trying to do. And I, it really tripped my trigger. And I put the band together, Enough's Enough, uh, coincidentally, about four years later, after watching these guys play and then rehearsing in my basement. And my mom and dad were kind enough to let me crank up those songs, and we were awful, I'm sure. Uh, I was playing baseball at the same time. And uh, I just did realized, after trying out for uh, numerous baseball teams, uh, Cincinnati Reds, uh, Milwaukee Brewers, Kansas City Royals, Chicago White Sox, that I had more to say writing a song than throwing a forkball or a slider or a fastball. But I took those elements of sports and baseball teams and brought them along with me when I put together Enough's Enough and a camaraderie and everybody working together as a team and for the common denominator and great, getting great songs together and having strict rehearsals. That was real important. Uh, and I, I owed baseball a lot. And it showed me about team unity and pulling things together as a gang. And I started, uh, I think, 20 or 21 when Enough's Enough first started recording. 
and playing small little clubs everywhere through Chicago. Any gig we could find, you know, opening for everybody from Cheap Trick to BTO. Were you playing uh, back in those days because uh, 84 or so is when you put the band together, yeah. I think. And so were you guys doing like the whole three sets in a club and playing cover songs and then pepperining some of the originals no, we were, Donnie were writing? No, we weren't. We were playing all originals, maybe one or two cover songs during a set. And it would only be a set we'd play for an hour, hour and a half at the most. And we'd be on Bill's opening for groups. So if we were opening for uh, Bachman Turner Overdrive or a uh, Cheap Trick, we'd, be, we'd play for 40 minutes. And that's all you get. That's you set your equipment up in front of their equipment and you, and you don't get a sound check, get a line check, check the microphone a little bit and then start playing. The old Thirsty Whale. The old Thirsty <laughs> Whale days were great. We started off playing the, way, the Thirsty Whale in Chicago for 50 bucks a night. And we get maybe a one gig every couple of months. Uh, but Jimmy DeCanio, the owner, was a big fan of the band. He's seen us growing up and watched us working and, and, and building this, this uh, monster of a band. And finally got to a point where when he actually got discovered and started making records, he put us in there. We'd play for a weekend. We'd do a, an all-ages show and a 21 and over show. On a Friday, and we do the same thing on a Saturday. Pay us thirty grand. That was a lot of money wow, for us back yeah. then. And uh, we really learned a lot and honed our chops. Uh, unfortunately, there was a black cloud over us at the time. There was a lot of a lot of party, and we burned the candle at both ends. We probably didn't give the best shows that we could have. But I look back at those videos very finely. Some of the shows are real strong. Other ones were a little questionable. But that was a good place for us to hone our chops and get out there and spread our wings and get a chance to go play around the country. Do you remember what the first album you purchased was with your own money? Uh, I remember the first 45. It was uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival, uh, Sweet Hitchhiker. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> I played it all over and over and over again. But my mother and father had a great musical collection from from Tom Jones down to Black Sabbath. Were they musicians, your parents? And they weren't musicians, but my father knew. He had something. He, he, had a, he loved the old blues stuff. Hound Dog Taylor and Muddy Waters and Electric Mud. And he turned me on to these records. And I'd ask him, you know, Dad, can I listen to to the stereo? And he'd say, go ahead, son. And uh, because I always cranked it as loud as I could. And that's where I learned to listen to bands like Canned Heat and uh, Rare Earth. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, it switched over and got in. I met Alice Cooper and, and started listening to a lot of Queen records and Beatles and I put all that stuff in a big potpourri. That's, I was, you are what yeah. you eat. Yeah. You those bands, and they really left an indelible mark with me. And then you started uh, getting into the whole uh, British movement, right? The Sweet and things like that. Did you f- find out about those bands through, um, uh, you know, Don Kirshner's rock concert and yeah. things like that yeah. that were on at yeah, the time? Absolutely. Don Kirshner's rock concert and uh, uh, Wolfman Jack. I listened to those shows in the middle of the night. Do you remember? Do you remember USA had um, Night Flight, where they showed these old videos like of bands? Do you remember that one at all? Yeah. Like I don't hear people talk too much about Night Flight, but that was one of the things I remember at one point in time growing up. Was uh, I think it was on USA or something? Yeah, it was on USA. Yeah. That was a big show, Night Flight. Actually, a lot of people got into that. I, the earlier stuff, we'd see the bands though playing live. That's what was, was exciting to see. What they perform, how they perform live, what they would use, their look, their image—it all caught all caught my attention, and I took that and used that as a template when I put together Enough's Enough. Yeah, and just fed off of those uh, those bands, I guess. How did the writing process work uh, with you and uh, Donnie? 
Because you guys wrote all the all the material, we right? Had a, yeah, I had an apartment, uh, 2231 Prairie in Blue Island. And we lived on the top floor. And we had a small little A-track Fostex. And that's where everything started. We had a little drum machine. I'd come up with the drum beats with him. I'd show him what my idea was. And he'd, he'd program it in the drum machine. And then we put the songs together. And that's how we did it in the early days. And uh, they say the songs came all different ways. Donnie come up with an idea, or I'd come up with an idea, or a riff. Yeah, uh, or, that was my question. When you say idea, was yeah. it a melody yeah, line or it, a riff? Yeah, all or, different ideas. Yeah. You know, it could be a, uh, a joint, an ashtray, lipstick on a glass. Something would trip our trigger, and we'd find a, find something that was the common denominator that would work with both of us. Interesting. And we never had a problem with that at all. And we were writing machines at that time. And, and Donnie, very profound writer, come up with great stuff. And he, the stuff that I would come up with that would maybe be average to some, he, he would turn into greatness. Uh, we it was, it had wonderful chemistry together. And it all it, all them early songs all were written in that little apartment, in that little bedroom there with no electricity. Donnie went downstairs and set it up to where uh, when you turn the lights on in the hallway in the morning, all electricity would come up in our place because we couldn't afford electricity. We had a refrigerator that was all just nothing but ice cubes. And we'd throw the eggs in there and the, wa- and the milk and the water, whatever we needed to have. That was our refrigerator. And we just wrote and wrote and wrote and had a bunch of material. And I eventually went down to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, and met these guys, my manager, Bob Brigham, and his partner, Ron Fagerstein. And they were uh, more than willing to listen to our cassette tape of the songs we had. And I remember saying to him, hey, guy, I only had a minute of an uh, interview with the guys. And I said, hey, guys, I got a band called Enough's Enough, and we write hits. And I gave them this, uh, the cassette, and they go, okay, yeah, good luck. And that was it. And six months later, they called me and said, hey, we just were in Tel Aviv, and we pulled your cassette out and put it in, and you're right. You got some great songs here. We want to meet you. And then Donnie and I went down to Lake Geneva and met the guys. Everything went wonderful meetings. And they said, we got our own recording studio called Royal Recorders in Lake Geneva. It's in the uh, Americana building. And we'd love you guys to come down and record a few of your songs. And that's where everything started, really did. Yeah. Do you remember the first song you wrote? Off the top of my head, there was a, there was a few of them, actually, in the first day that we wrote these songs. Uh, you're talking to a guy who's written over a thousand songs with my brother, you know? Just tons of material we had. Um, yeah. It ended up somewhere. The first song you guys wrote actually ended up somewhere? Yeah. Enough for me, I think, was the first one. Yeah. Um, we had we had, and on the early demos we had stuff like Tara Nicole, my daughters. Yeah, and we and uh, and just a lot of pop stuff, you know. If I if, boy, I wish I could tell you what yeah. the early stuff was. Uh, Heaven in a Bottle, that was an early one. There's so many great songs that you know, and some of them have slipped through the cracks, and rightly so because they weren't great songs. Yeah, but they were a stepping stone for us to come up with the the earlier material, which is you know uh, you know Catholic Girls and Day by Day and. Those weren't the first songs. That was the first record, right? And then later on, we started. We started growing a little bit more, and uh, and took some more chances, and came up with the new things in the Fly Michels. Right. And one of the things that I was curious about. So I know that um, Schulman came in to sign the band. You were talking the rehearsal or the uh, audition wasn't great for him, uh, but you basically played two songs for him, and that's all he really needed to see. What were those two songs? Do you remember? The first song, by the way, was Somewhere Else for Me. That was the first one we wrote. Okay. He finally came back. To all me. right, good. Uh, and the Derek Schulman stuff, Derek heard the early demos 
fly high, new thing, baby loves you, or the early stuff he heard. And that tripped his trigger, and that's what excited him. And he came to Chicago, flew to Chicago to see us at a rehearsal. Uh huh. So, do you remember those two songs you played for Derek? Yeah, first ones he, the first songs he got were a uh, new thing. Okay. Which he absolutely adored, and uh, she wants more. Okay. And huh? he loved them. And he came down to the rehearsal in Chicago at a place called Dress Rehearsal on Grand. And uh, the first song we played, Derek broke a guitar string, and Donnie said over the mic to Derek Shulman, uh, let me know if he blew the deal, I'll fire him right now. And we all giggle and laugh, and we played one more song, and after we were finished with that song, which I think she wants more, uh, Derek, uh, Donnie says, uh, you've heard enough, haven't you? And Shulman says, I certainly have. <laughs> and we thought, well, we didn't care because we already had a deal with Capitol Records, and we were gonna, that's what we wanted to go to because... Right. Capital had the Beatles, and we wanted to come back and use the old font and logo, the Beatles stuff, and come out real retro like that. However, the next day we got a, a facsimile from Atco Records and Derek Shulman uh, offering us a multi-album uh, deal, yeah. and so we ended up going with Atco. And we liked where Derek came from, a musician, you know, singer, right? And uh, he signed some great bands, Bon Jovi and Cinderella, and. He had Pantera. He had some good stuff. He had a good sense of balance and a great set of ears. And uh, we thought, well, maybe this is the best place to go to because we're, we're signing with a label where actually there's musicians there and guys that know how to play and know how to write songs. Right. By the way, Je uh, Derek Showman had a band called Gentle Giant, if anybody out there yep. likes prog rock, check them out because uh, they were a terrific band back then. You know, the, This is during the Genesis era and stuff. And those guys were way ahead of the game, but they were a little bit avant-garde. They had one hit called Kite. And it was a mod modest hit, uh, but it set the tone for him. And he realized that after a while that maybe going out and trying to find bands like Bad Company and ACDC would be more suited to him than getting up there and singing in front of uh, thousands of people every single night. Right. I get it. Yeah. And you put out the first record and then you moved on to Strength and... Uh, you guys recorded 32 songs for Strength, and, and we're going to do a double record at, at some point. Yeah. So I think, what, 15 songs made it on the record. Yeah, we did it without permission. The record company was smart. We did the first record without anybody showing up, any assistance whatsoever from the label. So when the second record came along, and the first record was gold, they said, well, you know, the guys had some success on the first record. Let's leave it alone. If it's not broken, there's nothing to fix. When he eventually showed up in Los Angeles uh, at... Um, uh, I forgot where we recorded it. Uh, we did do some of it at A&M, and we did some of it at One-on-One. Uh, -on -one and uh, uh, he came out to the studio to, to visit the band and see how things were going. He says, after hearing all the songs, he goes, guys, we have a good problem. Uh, too many good songs. You know, it's, it's too much information to put out there. Let's just, let's just take the best 15 and put it on strength. And uh, you guys did a wonderful job, but we'll keep those other songs for records in, in the future. So it was him. It was Derek. It was the guy that stopped us from putting that double record out. And that was your last record with Atco before filing for bankruptcy. So what happened to those other 15, 16, 17 songs? Well, we kept the master tapes at um, Music Grinder. That's where we were at. And uh, the studio owner was kind enough to let us uh, get the masters back. And then we transferred everything and then went back in the studio and tweaked up what we didn't finish, overdubs, etc. And then put those records out for Animals of Human Intelligence and so, uh, Tweaked. So those just Peach became Fuzz. filtered yeah, for some of the songs. other records. Yeah, we'd listen to the songs and go, okay, this might fit the record. Yeah. 
And I was working for a record distributor at the time you guys signed that deal with uh, Arista Records. And <laughs> Arista made a big deal about it because they didn't really have any rock bands. So they were kind of building a cornerstone with you guys and with Every Mother's Nightmare. Mm-hmm. And at one point in time, you guys, I think, played like this big executive thing for Arista, which was uh, you guys and, and Every Mother's Nightmare. Yeah, the Copacabana. I remember that. It was like a big meeting. Yeah, was there? Did something go down that night, or something happened that was was negative uh, at that party or that evening? No, absolutely not. No. It was a wonderful show. We had a great rehearsal. Some of the executives came down to watch the band. Band was on fire. We were we were excited. And it was during a time where it was um, we were uh, we discovered serendipity, a moment of clarity. It wasn't a, the drug. The drug abuse was dying down. We thought a little bit. Everybody was really uh, watching themselves, and we knew we were in the public eye, and uh, we were being uh, watched over with through a telescope. So uh, we we were really watching our, our actions at the time, and uh, the shows were terrific. Uh, that show was in particular was uh, very well attended. People loved it. Clive was super happy. He never takes pictures with the bands unless he loves you. He hung out. We took p- pictures of the group. Uh, we were excited about it, and it was the next show that fell apart that we we had we had some problems, and that was at the Roxy in Los Angeles, a couple weeks later, and all Clive's constituents from all around the country, over in Europe and the United States, were all getting together and congregating to see his new signings, and Clive was on stage and he says, "Ed, twenty million, we got Whitney Houston." The clapped clapped, and at ten million, we got uh, the flute player, whatever his name is, that guy played flute. Uh, or played uh, clarinet, whatever he is, a pop guy. Uh, oh, yeah, the Kenny G. So uh, Kenny G, we got, you know, $5 million sold. Yeah. And Tony Braxton at $3 million, he was going through all his uh, successes. Yeah. And as he's talking, Donnie snuck up on stage with a half dozen of flowers and stuck them between his legs and simulating a hard-on. And it was cute. He, he thought, probably obviously wasn't the best move to make. <laughs> He didn't. He, his intentions weren't as bad as it came out to be. Right. And Clive looked down. He says, oh, "I guess everything's coming up roses." You know, introducing the cornerstone of our rock department. You know, please welcome our new signing. Enough's enough. And we went on stage to play, and uh, the show was a disaster. And, and didn't mean to be. We certainly didn't plan it that way, but uh, it just didn't come off as well. The, the settings uh, when we did sound check, everything was changed by the time we got back to the venue. And when the band started playing, it was like a 747 taking off. It was louder and more powerful and distorted and beyond belief. Uh-huh. And it was it was just not what Clive was anticipating. When he signed enough snuff, he thought he was signing uh, the Beatles, the Raspberries, Badfinger. Right. And instead, he got a uh, Guns N' Roses show. And he wasn't really happy about that, I'm sure. Uh, but the record still came out. It was a strong record. He had uh, great people working with us on that. All the Def Leppard guys were a part of that, putting that album together. And we thought, well, we still got a chance here. Uh, let's go out there and tour and try to support this record. One thing I find a little bit interesting about Enough's Enough is I've always said that uh, a really good song is one that you can hear loud and abrasively, but can also be stripped down acoustically and performed acoustically. I'm a little surprised that Enough's Enough, at least I don't know about it, but Enough's Enough's never really done an acoustic record? Well, you're right, because there was no demand for that. If people were wanted to see that, they can come see us live. We did plenty of shows where we played acoustically, 
Uh, but I don't think any, there wasn't. Uh, it's, it's all about demand, and people wanted to hear. It. At the time we came out, it was um, it started off rock, and then there was an all whole alternative with Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Allison Chains. All this stuff came in, and it was real heavy, and everybody wearing the, the, the clothes that they wore, and it was a whole different scene, and nobody really dressed like rock stars anymore, and as a change of the guard, so to speak. So. We would have put an acoustic record out, and there's plenty of bootlegs out there of us acoustically. But um, for the most part, people want to hear the songs. They want to hear the big guitars, and that's what we are known for. So we continue to do it that way. Yeah, I would love to see a, um, a stripped-down acoustic set, just even if it was something like what uh, Y&T recently did, like a seven-song EP acoustic or something. It turned out really well, and I think uh, enough's enough songs would be something that would really, really come across strong. Well, we did that stuff in uh, early 2000 when we went over to Japan. We recorded all those sets, and we would do we would play a two and a half hour show, rock show, and then afterwards the promoter had set up where we play an hour acoustically as well. Really, they they really work you over there in Japan. Yeah. And there was plenty of shows that were recorded acoustically, and there's a lot of bootlegs out there, and I'm glad fans get a chance to get that stuff because in a lot of ways we were like the Grateful Dead. We let people come on out record the shows. We were never were jag-offs about that. We want the fans to have a good experience, and uh, if they got a chance to grab some of it and bring it home with them, that was terrific as well. It wasn't about the money. It was more about people getting to hearing the songs and hearing the music, and maybe there's a, a movie director out there or someone doing a TV show or commercial or soundtrack that would want those songs in a different form. So we always put it out there the best we could, and you hope that the right people hear it. You've played uh, on a lot of different records and, and helped produce a lot of different things. I saw you playing with somebody, and I can't recall who it was, but you turned up on TV in the background somewhere playing with some pop artist at some point. Who all have you played with? Well, I've, I've recorded and played with, you know, members of Journey, Smashing Pumpkins, Cheap Trick, Sticks. What you seen, what you were talking about, uh, the NBC show is called Hit Me Baby. I used to play bass in a band called Missing Persons. And uh, I was with them on and off for about five, six years. I love Dale. She's terrific. Yeah. Band's wonderful legacy left behind. Uh, big Terry Basio fan as well. And uh, I did that tour for a while, and we we did some pretty big shows. And that just happened to be one really great show that we did on that was televised where millions of people can see it. And a lot of people see me on that show, and I I did it because for two reasons. One, we had a little lull in time where Enough Snuff was off. And two, I thought by playing with her would help elevate the perception of Enough Snuff and reach different fans that might not know about our band. Well, and it's, you know, it's all par for the course these days. I mean, you got guys like Nuno from Extreme playing guitar for Rihanna yeah. uh, on tour. So it's, I think it speaks more about the musician you are uh, than anything. Because I know that Donnie in the past, some of the past interviews, he's said uh, some very nice things about you as far as being one of the best bass players he's ever played with. And just really, you don't get enough credit for your musicianship, I don't think. Uh, and you really hold down that that uh, uh, song. So I think that that needs to be pointed out a little more. That's nice to hear that. I, uh, it's always good to be recognized for what you do. But I'm more of a a team player and i don't really need to have the recognition as a bass player it's nice to people hear the stuff and the songs are what's important i i play bass for the song mm -hmm. and if the song does well the bass obviously is a big component in those songs so 
it's always good when people recognize you what you do. Uh, but that wasn't why I got into the business. I I'm, I'm, I want to put songs out there, and I wanted to have great performances and have a wonderful band and go out and play the songs. So when people get the records, if they hear those songs, they go, wow, sounds just like the record. And if they come see and they don't know who the band is, they hear the live performance, they go, this band is great live. That's a, It's all about the indelible mark that you leave with the audience and more than your uh, individual recognition, I think. But it's always nice to hear when people say good things about you. Yeah, that's your legacy is the songs itself. And uh, so you just uh, you put out Clowns Lounge, and this is your new contract with Frontiers Record, correct? Yeah, yeah. since I've taken over lead vocal duties uh, with Enough's Enough, uh, the whole game has changed. It's, and I'm just, we're building it up right now. The whole team is building this this puzzle back up that's been scattered all over the ground new record new songs uh another chance and there's still gas in the tank uh, and, and there's no and we're all healthy still god bless us so that's that's a good thing i wasn't planning on a record deal we did the m3 festival in baltimore and right after that frontiers contacted us and said we'd like a record out of enough snuff and i had no material i just had old stuff to old songs in the vault and and an archival record if you may and I took that archival record, went in the studio, tweaked it all up, put a couple other songs on there that we wrote as a band as we are right now today. And I think that really helped us a lot. Uh, put that record out, did very well for Frontiers Clowns Lounge. Went out and got a tour. Got the Kiss Cruise. I was uh, doing a Monster Rock. And after Monster Rock, I came in and I was hired by Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp to play with uh, Cheap Trick and Blue Esther Cult and Paul Stanley. And Paul came up to me and said, hey, man, we're doing a Kiss Cruise. We'd love you to have enough snuff uh, support us. And I said, I'd be honored to. And he said, well, you guys, I asked you a couple of years ago, and you, and you couldn't do it. And I said, ah, we just weren't in that position right now, but we are now. And uh, he called Doc McGee and got us on there. Those four shows really set the tone because right after that, Ace Freely called me and his, uh, his agent, a guy named Kevin over at North Star, Said, uh, Chip, uh, you guys want to take these t- this tour? The money's not great, but you know you could play with Ace every single night. And I said, we'll take it. And that changed the band right there. That one tour set the tone for us. The record came out, did very well for us. The tour was successful. And then, of course, Frontier said, okay, we want to up our deal. Let's make it a three-album deal. Can you guys give us another record? We just finished our new record yesterday. Ah, oh, awesome. So Clowns Lounge was kind of an archival record, which is you had stuff from Yeah, with from a couple past. new songs in there. The first single was uh, Dog and a Bone. That yeah. was new. It had the band How We Are Today. rest of it was stuff that Donnie and I have written years ago, and it was just sitting in a vault. Yeah. I, and I thank God I was uh, intuitive enough to save all those demos. Yeah. And then I went back, and I have my own recording studio in Chicago and Blue Island, and I went back in the studio, and I tweaked all them songs up and added the new songs and... And the new record that you just finished, is it the same or is it all new? Brand new songs, brand new brand new record that's called uh, Diamond Boy. You're the first guy I've told about it. That's awesome. I'm excited about that. And everybody that's in the touring yeah. band now. Tori Stilfragan, lead guitar. Tony Oscar Fennel playing guitar, yeah. also singing, playing keyboards. And Daniel Benjamin Hill playing drums. Real throwback 70s album. Glitter Rock at its finest. You okay. guys wrote together? Yeah, I, yep. That's exciting. We're all in the songs. Awesome. I'm very excited about that. And so your relationship with Frontiers, then, it's pretty it's, good. It's been great so far. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's growing every single day. I love the guys, Sarfini uh, and Mario down there. They're all good people. Ryan, I, I, it's a wonderful team that really loves what we do. 
and they're big fans of 80s and 90s rock. And they pushed, they got some good bands on there. I mean, the Journey's on the label, and uh, White Snake, and Sebastian Bach, and Night Ranger, and Revolution Saints. And yeah. this is a quite, quite a good, uh, LA Guns new records on there. It's really good. Bullet Boys, a lot of good bands on there. They, oh, completely. I mean, that's the place to be right now. They've waved the flag for hard rock and heavy metal uh, uh, the last uh, five or ten years. So I agree. It's been really, really good. Are there any songs in the illustrious Enough's Enough catalog that you guys have never played live that you would like to maybe dust off and pull out and put in the set? Too many of them, but they're difficult, and uh, that's why we didn't. We haven't taken that chance. Uh, but there's quite a few songs that I'd love to play live, and we we do a few of them in the set as you hear tonight. Taking some chances, and we, I'm I'm focusing on the first three records because that's where those are the records that sold the most, right? We have that we've had the most commercial success with, but I'm also mixing in with songs also throughout our catalog. So, you tell me tonight what you think of some of the material that we, that we don't normally play live. So, I think it's good that uh, we got we're taking a chance. There's just some songs that just you know, yes, the Stones that are Zeppelin or or Foo Fighters. There's just some songs that don't translate as, as well live as they would on record. How long a set do you get to do tonight? Uh, tonight we'll play an hour. Okay, it's a short set. We like to play a couple hours, but. There's a couple of junkyards on the bill with yeah, us yeah. tonight as well. And we like playing with other bands as well. So I think it's real important that we get as many songs as we can. There's not a lot of talk and a lot of jibber-jabber. It's, it's bash it out. It's a smash and grab set for us. Can I do a quick lightning round with you and then let you get out of here? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Go ahead. Lennon or McCartney? Uh, that's a tough one, but if I had to pick one, Lennon. I owe my by the way. By the way, I owe my job to Paul McCartney. So, (laughs) for me to say that's questionable. But I've just always loved John's sense of balance and uh, a wonderful songwriter. Just as just as fine as Paul. They're both great. Yep. Uh, The Sweet or the Beatles? Beatles. (laughs) Do you sing in the car or the shower? Car. And what songs would you be singing? Uh, Bowie, Cheap Trick. (laughs) Not the hoople. There's the list goes on. Uh, song you wish you wrote. Ah, it's a good one. Anything by the Beatles. Anything by Cheap Trick. Anything by Queen. I uh, I'll tell you, spread your wings by Queen. Off. Uh, what would that be? A day at the races. Nice. Or maybe right. it was like maybe the news of the world. I'm sorry, news that of the news world. News of the world. Yeah, that album doesn't get enough credit, does nope. it? How do you uh, how do you get your music today? Do you stream or are you a, a physical uh, purchaser? What do you? Uh, absolutely physical purchaser, and the fans like that too. Because when you go to see a show and you go see Aerosmith or one of the great bands out there that's playing, they sell CDs at the shows now, and you can get it signed. Yeah. So you, you you're not going to get uh, something off iTunes signed by the artist, right? But you got a physical copy of it, and it lasts. It's going to yeah. last you forever. So i'm a fan of physical and it's good for the groups out there and the artists let's support all artists out there absolutely and and as a touring musician i know it can be tough sometimes from a standpoint of carrying music and things like that but uh absolutely support the arts and and purchase your music for sure Who do you want to see live in 2018 uh, oasis i'd like to see them get back together again foo fighters made a great new record i tell you it's absolutely tremendous uh, that'd be a good show to go see. Cheap Tricks going back out again this year, too. They're uh, supporting Poison. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a great tour. Yeah. That's, it's going to be packed with trim, so much action there. <laughs> People partying their ass off. It's, that's a fun, fun tour. There, and there's probably a ton more out there, but those are three off the top of my head right now that I can think of. That. I saw them last year with Foreigner. They were great. They were really good. Uh, favorite new band or artist? Uh, Struts. 
from uh, England. They're yep. a terrific band. They sound a little bit like Queen, a little heavier, a little more aggressive. There's so many good bands out there, but that's right off the top of my head. Yeah. MGMT, they're an interesting band. I like that. Yeah. Kind of alternative, uh, poppy a little bit. They got some guitars in there. Anything but guitars I like. And I like bands without guitars, too. Keen. That's a great band over in England. Yeah. Terrific band. I love Louis Fourteenth. Terrific. Out of San Diego. I don't know what they're doing right now, but that's a great band on Atlantic that just don't get the, they just don't get the push they deserve. Yeah. You're a Chicago boy, so the Cubs or the White Sox? Sox, for sure. <laughs> but I respect the Cubs, and I'm grateful to be from Chicago, and, and I love that they finally broke through. And we They're a great team. They're wonderfully coached, and uh, the owner's terrific, and they really changed the whole city of Chicago. But my grandfather, Sigma Rabarski, played with the White Sox back in the 30s, and, I'll always, and I tried out for the Sox when I was a kid. So I'll always be partial to the White Sox. Yeah, I understand. My dad cleaned up Wrigley Field when he was a kid. So That's great. What, I'm a Cubs guy. Yeah, <laughs> love them both. Okay, how's yeah. that? That's being fair. Yeah. Most most Chicago ones just pick one or the other. I want to see Chicago do well. Yeah, fair enough. Last question: Two Desert Island Records. Uh, Pink Floyd. Wish you were here. Uh, Queen. Night at the Opera. Chip, you've been awesome, man. I appreciate your time, my friend. Thanks for talking to me, bro. I appreciate it. I hope I see you at the show tonight, okay? Oh, of course you will. And I want to wish everybody that's listening to this podcast a uh, happy new year. I know it's February, but happy new year. I hope that uh, the best thing that happened to you last year is the worst thing that happens to you this year. And I hope to see you all on tour in the summer with Enough's Enough. Cheers. So that's my interview with Chips Enough. What do you think there, Hollywood? That, it's, it's a great interview. I mean, there is uh, no doubt that uh, that guy's pretty humble. I mean, that's this is great content. Yeah, he's given a few interviews before, it sounds like. He knew what he was saying. <laughs> he, he was right on point. Just hit play, hit record, and let it go. Yeah, uh, no, no doubt. No doubt at I all. Didn't have to do a whole lot of talking, which was good. So, so now, did you talk to him before the show, right? Yeah, I got I got a opportunity to talk to him kind of uh, early in the afternoon, right after sound check, um, and before they took off and took a little personal time to go back to the hotel and everything. So, I didn't have a real long time. I had that, you know, thirty or forty minutes. He was super, super gracious with his time. Um, in fact, I held him up from eating his dinner and I, I felt bad about that. So I just want to get him out of there. Um, you know, once he spent some time with me, uh, which was cool. So then I hung around the club a little bit, uh, chatted it up a little bit with the guys from junkyard, because as I said, they were playing on the bill with junkyard, which junkyard's another band that I like quite a bit. Um, and then the iron maidens. And Enough's Enough was going on first. They were playing uh, their set uh, and then Junkyard. And then the Iron Maidens, which is funny, it's weird. A tribute band is closing the night out. Uh, but that's how it worked. I think the bands, the headline, or I think Junkyard and Enough's Enough wanted to get their sets out of the way so that they could probably get on the road. I don't know. I'm speculating that it didn't say that, but just kind of a weird thing to have a tribute band closing out the night so 
And where was this at? This was at a small club in um, a suburb of Atlanta called Buford. And the club's wow. called 37 Main. They do quite a few um, national acts uh, through there. I've seen, okay. I've seen like Warrant and Adler's Appetite and some other things, Lynch Mob, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in fact, LA Guns played there last night with Phil and Tracy, but I didn't make it out to that show. I was just a little bit too tired, and it was a school night. So, and you said uh, they played a pretty small set. What they did? They do any covers, or was it all originals? They did a cover. Um, so here's the set. I'll read you the set. They opened up with "Baby Loves You," uh, which is off the Strength record. Um, then they went in to kiss the clown, which is off the first record heaven or hell, which is off strength in the groove, which is off the first record. Um, they went into some guitar solos after that. Then they went into, uh, Gene Genie, the, uh, David Bowie song. Uh, then they went into fly high Michelle off the first record, new thing off the first record dog on a bone which is off the Clown's Lounge, the latest record that they put out, which was one of the new songs that they wrote for the record. Um, and then they finished up with Wheels, uh, which I think is off of either Seven or Paraphernalia. I can't remember which which uh, record that's off of. Okay. Um, and that was the set, pretty much. Uh, 30 minutes 35 minutes no it was um it was closer to probably 45 or 50 minutes uh when it was all said and done you know they they talked in between the songs and and had some fun and and did some extensions and and things like that um so they did a few things one song they didn't play that i absolutely love and so i'm gonna play it right now is a song called For Now.
Yeah, so that song has got pop song, early 80s. Like, I'm listening to it going, is this Flock of Seagulls? Is this... Like, it, it's got that, that it's, pop sensibility to it. It's totally pop, but it sounds freaking great. And I love the melody line. Flock of Seagulls, that's a little much, man. Come on. At least there's <laughs> guitars in there. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> you trying to say? So... Uh. Yeah, but that that song just seems a little late to the party. Like if that song gets released in the early to mid '80s, it's got a shot to probably take off. Well, but 1989 is a little late. You know that's what's messed up about this band. So they put the band together in '84. So I mean, oh, they were a band in '84. You know, in '85 they were honing their chops and and playing Chicago and. Um, you know, opening up for national acts and garnering a bunch of attention. But um, for whatever reason, it just took them that three or four years to finally get signed and finally get a record out, you know. And by that by that time, like like we said, by that time, it was late to the party, 89. Yeah. You know, a lot of bands in that 89 to 90 um, uh, span got, really short changed because there was a lot of great bands out at that time that just got short changed um i think yeah if you were an established band you were selling millions of albums yep. at that point that's right like dr feelgood was one of the biggest albums of that era yeah right but if you were starting out man you got lost in the dr feelgood shuffle yeah and in fact you know that'd be a good um That'd be a good ain't no disco uh, to do like 88, 89, maybe. Yeah. Right in around there would probably be a good episode of uh, this ain't no disco because uh, if we dig deep enough, we could find probably a lot of really good records that came out that didn't, didn't get the exposure that they deserved. Right. Okay. Well, that's cool. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. So that's it. That's my Enough's Enough conversation with Chip's Enough. There you have it. Well, great job, sir. Uh, uh, yeah, like I said, uh, that guy was a good interview, right? He was like on autopilot on some of that stuff. But, you know, at least he's a good talk. Sometimes it's hard to get the answers out. Yeah, he's an interesting dude for sure. Um, yeah. And uh, that band is has seen and done a lot and been through hell like a lot of other bands. But, uh, hey, you know, what are you going to do? So, cool. All right. Well, that's it for this week. All right. See you next week. Later. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 